Hey everybody, welcome to the 30th episode of our Mainline Podcast. This episode, I am joined by Sinotalk. He is our Indo-Pacific Desk Chief for Walton from the Borderlands. And I'm also joined by Chase of the Quantico Warfighting Society. And today we're going to be talking about Flashpoint Taiwan. Flashpoint Taiwan is a war game that will be held in December and that is the brainchild of the Lethal Minds Journal. Sinotok is playing a huge role in that as our desk chief for that region, and Quantico Warfighting Society is helping out as well, and the uh, George Washington University in the National Capital Region is helping out with that as well. So we're going to be talking about that today, some of the history of the conflict, some of the considerations for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, such as you know terrain and weather, logistics, regional players, that sort of stuff. Before we get started here, check out the Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin for the Borderlands, a bi-weekly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon, patreon.com slash analyze educate. Or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate as well. And we are also on Substack, analyzeeducate.substack.com. You can find all those links in the show notes below. All right, I'm here with Sinotalk, and I'm here with Chase from the Quantico Warfighting Society. How's it going, gents? Doing right, man. Doing good on this uh, cold week, cold Wednesday. So getting started, Chase, this is your first time on here. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what the Warfighting Society is, for those who don't know? Yeah, so the the Warfighting Society is, it's a pretty much like a large group, large organization, but there's many sub-chapters, right? And uh, basically the intent was that a man named Damien O'Connell, he works over here in the National Capital Region. He's worked with TBS and a lot of other Marine Corps organizations. He started a a organization called the Warfighting Society, where he wanted to basically take some of the best elements of PME, whether that be tactical decision games, decision forcing case studies, uh, things like that, discussions, and basically just permeate it and to get it out to people so that people want to engage with this kind of PME in their off hours. And so he made it so that people could start chapters and these chapters could be tailored towards a specific unit. For example, uh, 1-8 has a warfighting society, 3-2 has a warfighting society. So like specific units where members from that unit of any rank, any grade can get together and they can speak about problems that persist within that unit that can basically improve lethality within the unit, as well as run through TDGs, you know, all these other things to basically just improve the intellectual capacity of the members in that unit. Um, I started the Quantico Warfighting Society about a year ago, a little over a year ago out here in Quantico, just because I actually work in PME. Uh, so I'm still active duty. I work at the staff and CO Academy uh, here in Quantico. And I just wanted to take some of those best elements of PME, what I'm very passionate about. And I wanted to be able to do that in my off hours and get Marines involved that weren't coming through my doors at the Academy. Cause I have a, a great reach of Marines that I get to talk to and mentor and, and teach at the Academy, but I wanted to reach those that aren't going to be passing through my classroom. And so I stood up the Quantico Warfighting Society and had a, a, a bunch of different meetings and kind of just gotten to a different uh, a lot of different things. So I brought out people from CD&I, for example, so combat development and integration here on, on Quantico. 
to speak about Force Design 2030. So they're members of the Force Design 2030 team. So some of the colonels up there, uh, we've spoken about logistics in a contested environment. We've done, uh, we did a, a meeting where we had John Schmidt, the author of MCDP-1, zoom in and we asked him questions, had a guided discussion kind of thing. We've done TDGs, all those little things as well. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's an organization that anybody can start one. If you're passionate about it, uh, you can start one for your base. You can start one for your unit. We There's one at the Pentagon. So it's really pretty open. Uh, we all fall into this giant umbrella that Damien stood up though. And so you'll just see war fighting societies springing up everywhere. Uh, as long as there's people that are passionate about it and ready to get them started. Okay. Now let's, uh, get into why we're here today. What is flashpoint Taiwan? We've all been posting about that a lot on social media. Yeah. Uh, I, I can take, take this one and just to get started, sign on, and I guess you can pick up anything that I might miss, but okay. so flashpoint Taiwan, uh, is, it's the brainchild of Lethal Minds, really, the Lethal Minds Journal. So uh, they reached out, some of the staff over at Lethal Minds Journal reached out to me and then a few other people uh, a few months back. I think back in maybe June or July, we started talking about this. And the initial idea was let's put together some kind of event where we can actually bring people together. The Lethal Minds Journal obviously has been doing a lot of great things in the online sphere through Instagram, through the Substacks, through all the different podcasts and everything else that they're basically doing. But they wanted to make a actual event where people can get together and go through something together. So what they decided was let's put together a war game and let's focus it around some of the hottest topics right now. Uh, obviously one of those hot topics being the Indo-Pacific theater. Uh, it would be hard to say that that's not one of the preeminent topics that's, you know, in the front of everybody's view. So they wanted to put together a war game. So they brought me on because I'm, I run the Quantico Warfighting Society, so I obviously have some connections here in the National Capital Region. Uh, I've got an audience that's here as well. So I came in to be one of the the helpers to develop this thing. They brought on people like Sinotalk that have immense you know, knowledge on the area. Uh, we were able to get some actual war game facilitators. So I know some people at Marine Corps University that were able to volunteer their time. They actually run some of the war games for uh, schools like the School of Advanced Warfighting or Command and Staff, uh, EWS, things like that. So we basically put together this this whole team and we ended up settling on, it was going to be an article series that was going to be written primarily by Sinotalk. So he's going to lay out a series of articles that kind of walks us through this entire problem set, starting from the history of China uh, and Taiwan relations all the way up through C2, logistics, uh, force disposition, all the different relevant factors uh, surrounding this scenario. And then ultimately, it will culminate in a actual war game in the National Capital Region, which at this point, we're going to be doing it in Washington, D.C., and it's going to be over the period of three days. And it's also a crisis simulation. So it's not just uh, playing out actual fighting, but it's also simulating different countries, different regional actors. What would they have to be making decisions about during specific times? In addition, uh, we ended up throwing in a discussion series. So basically, Sinotalk will drop an article. The very next week, we'll hop on Zoom, and anybody is able to Zoom in. And we basically talk through that previous week's article. So uh, for example, last week, we spoke about logistics, because that was what the previous article was about. 
And those usually run for about an hour worth of dis like just discussion. And then usually we end up having another hour worth of questions, question and answer where uh, people like yourself or other participants will ask a question and then myself, sign up, talk, whoever's on the line will kind of go back and forth in, in answering those things. So that's kind of how it's rolled out. Article series, in addition to classes, and then ultimately culminating in a war game crisis simulation that's going to happen in DC later this year in December. Okay, cool. So I know anything you want to add on to that? No, I mean, Chase hit it, hit it pretty good. Okay, cool. So let's hop into some of the considerations we've been talking about in the context in these articles and the classes. I guess we could start off with the general history. I mean, we, we should explain why this is uh this conflict is even a thing, why it's so important, right? Where does it come from? Senator, you want to jump on on some of that? I can jump in wherever, but uh I don't want to do all the talking and steal steal the light. No worries. Uh yeah, so realistically, how the conflict came about between Taiwan and China is the fact that it's a relic or continuation of the Chinese Civil War. Um, the Chinese communists defeated the Republican army on the mainland, but the mainland, uh, but the Republican, uh, but the Republican, the Republic of China actually fled uh, the mainland to Taiwan, which was recently returned to the Republic of China from the imperial from the empire of japan and realistically china wanted to finish finish them off a lot of people don't realize that mao was actually prepping for an invasion but the only thing that stopped us or the only thing that stopped the um, the invasion was the korean war and then also the United the potential for the United States to actually intervene and decide in favor on the Republic of China side. So correct me if I'm wrong, but technically speaking, the Chinese Civil War never really ended with a peace, right? If you want to be technical about it, it's still going on. Yes, I mean it would. You could compare it to the uh, to the uh, situation on the Korean Peninsula. Whereas, you know, they recently, you know, they signed a peace treaty or a ceasefire, but realistically, before before that even occurred between Kim Jong-un and the South and the South Korean president at that time, they were still at a state of war. So it's the same thing with, it's the same thing with the, um, with China and Taiwan, but there's no kinetic actions right now. No connect, no uh, connect tip or tap like it, how it used to be. The the one thing that would probably differentiate it uh, from the situation on the Korean Peninsula would be the fact that there have been kinetic actions throughout our history, though, even though those haven't necessarily happened in the last couple of decades. Uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, moving up, you know, there's plenty of like artillery barrages happening on some of the outpost islands that fell under the control of Taiwan and things like that. But uh, not a bad characterization in comparison, though. Sino, can you give us some details about these crises that have happened? Yeah, so realistically, there have been four crises that occurred between um, 
within the history of the first China crisis, the first Taiwan Strait crisis, the second, third, and fourth. We're currently in the fourth one, but historically there always been one, two, and three. So the first, uh, first, uh, so the first Taiwan Strait crisis occurred whenever during the uh, Eisenhower administration, when Mao Zedong wanted to test the resolve of of the administration support for Taiwan to try to see you talk about supporting Taiwan and let's see how much you mean it. And so that's the reason why you had them shelling Kidman. Now I believe upwards to a million shells were fired during the crisis between between either side. And not only that, but it actually showed the Chinese that the uh, that the United States meant we will help Taiwan and we will support them and we will, if necessary, intervene on their on their behalf because we literally built up I don't know how many thousands of thousands of uh, personnel and equipment and include aircraft carriers and planes in that region in, uh, in a short amount of time. But you can all you can look at it. You can you can compare it to what we're doing in the Eastern Mediterranean right now uh, regarding the ongoing conflict in Israel. And we did the, we did that that amount of buildup in that little time, and China decided they and China, with pressure from the Soviet Union decided we can plot this. And then the second one was them going back and seeing, okay, you said you want to test. We're going to test you again. See if you really want to do this. See how far we can push you. And so, again, another artillery abroad. Some planes were shot down from either side. And Again, we built him up. We built up our presence over there, and including um, in other regions as well, or in other uh, in, in in other regional countries as well, so the Philippines and Japan, the Nexus in Okinawa, and also Taiwan as well. And during that time, they primarily shelled again, and then what led to the ceasefire was Soviet Union essentially ordering Mao to stop, to say, this is enough. We're not going to support you anymore if you, or provide you any more diplomat diplomatic cover if you continue on this route, because you're escalating this. And Mao being the person that he was, he kind of hated being told that by what he thought a usurper that was Khrushchev. And so that was actually one of the reasons for the sign of Soviet split. Um, after that, you had a period of relative calm. There wasn't really a crisis, but you did have, as Chase mentioned, there was a lot of tit for tat artillery battles, primarily on the outlying islands 
uh, such as Kidman, Matsuro, and a few others that were within artillery range of the mainland. But then in 1996, you had the third Taiwan crisis, where Taiwan actually sent, or not Taiwan, but China actually launched ballistic missiles over the island as a to prevent the Taiwanese population from electing what they view as pro-Taiwanese independent politicians. And the United States responded again with the, with the buildup, but this time they made a point of selling a United uh, a carrier group through the Strait of, uh, through the uh, Strait of through the Taiwan Strait, and that was really scared the Chinese in a way because they couldn't really do anything about it. They couldn't touch it. They couldn't hit it with any other anti-ship ballistic or anti-ship uh, cruise missiles because they didn't have the range, and more so likely it wouldn't do anything anyway. And so that's whenever you've seen them actually started to develop weapons to potentially destroy aircraft carriers. This is such as the anti-ship ballistic missile. And um, in a weird way, that crisis actually did prompt a large part of the uh, Taiwanese population to vote for the KMT, as opposed to the DP, DDP, uh, Democratic People of uh, Progressive Party uh, candidate. And right now, where some people are saying we are in, we are currently in a third crisis, uh, third Taiwan Strait crisis, or fourth Taiwan Strait crisis, forgive me. Um, and that's just, and that primarily, and that actually happened in the aftermath of Nancy Pelosi's visit to the island in August 2022. And so with that, again, you've seen them, you've seen the PLA conducting all these exercises and then also sending ballistic missiles over the island. But instead of hitting international water, it also hit, they also landed in Japanese territorial waters as well. And so, in a weird way, that was Xi Jinping's way of trying of letting the Japanese know that this is uh, this is a Chinese problem. Do not get involved because the island or the water that um, the island slash territory uh, territory that it, the ballistic missile landed in was less than 70 miles away from uh, from Taiwan, from the western coast of Taiwan. You can actually see it on a clear, uh, on a clear, uh, on a clear day from that on. You can actually see Taiwan on a clear day from that on. So let me ask you this. Why would the PRC want to invade Taiwan? You could correct me if I'm wrong, but from my understanding, they don't really have a historical claim to Taiwan or as it used to be called Formosa in the World War II era. Why is this such a big deal for them? I mean, they've really, in all, for all intents and purposes, won the Civil War. What do they care if this tiny island off their coast, you know, has the descendants of the people they fought this war against? Well, I think one of the things that they really want to 
win the war or, or you know invade and occupy and reunify Taiwan quote unquote is just the mere fact in the CCP's mind is that we brought about the great unification of we're trying to bring about the great rejuvenation of, of China in which they started whenever they established the PRC in 1949 in which they said they called it the new China. That's a big thing there in the uh, in the state propaganda and posters in the, in that era is that you know it was a Shenzhen Bowl or New China and their spouse like oh we made this and they'll display all these things that they that the party did for the people and for them they believe that we can only be rejuvenated if they were correct every single wrong that ever occurred to China. Not like Communist Party era China, not Warlord era China, not most certainly not the Republican era China. But to the China of Imperial of the Imperial era. So realistically what that means is that during the hundred years of during the hundred years of humiliation, they want to retake and redo or um, avenge all of that. And one of the, or in their mind, the last uh, uh, undoing from that era is to quote unquote reunify with Taiwan, because. The Ming Dynasty had a claim over it, but it was it was realistically not solid. I mean, they've only had the coastal areas. And even then they were just small little villages, small towns <clears throat> that weren't really that built up and so from their perspective so from the so from the japanese perspective they were like okay you can give us this uninhabited island there's this uh, unoccupied island and you know the, the Qing dynasty china having lost the battle having lost the uh the first the first uh sino japanese war uh had a relinquished control over it quote unquote control. And um and so from their perspective, even though the Qing Dynasty China had somewhat control over the island, they still viewed it as part of greater China because there were Chinese there. And then on the flip side of it, and this is what this this actually kind of ties this actually ties into the third uh, Taiwan Strait crisis is the fact that the Chinese uh, the, is the fact that the Taiwanese on the island actually did something that the Chinese Communist Party actually say that is impossible to do with the Chinese with the Chinese on the mainland is to develop a democracy a private democracy. And have it mess reasonably well with Chinese culture and the people. That's one of the things that the CCP has actually 
mentioned and told the people saying that, oh, well, you don't need to have democracy. It won't work with our, uh, with our, uh, with our age old ancient culture. The, the, you won't know what to do with yourself if we give you freedom. If we give you the choice to vote, you'll probably end up killing yourself. Like what happened in the world. That's why you need control. And so for them to, so for Taiwan to actually be that way is for them as a, for them as an affront. Because it shows that it's a lie. All that propaganda is a lie. So let me ask, why is this a conflict that we paid so much attention to and there's such a potential for us to get involved if it goes hot? It would be economic. Um, Chase, feel free to jump in too as well. So you um, have some take on this as well. Did you have some? Did you have take on this as well? I think regarding this, it would be the economic. It would play such an economic, geopolitical role, and for the future, and for the future, not only the region but for the world as well. Because a lot of people don't realize that. The Strait, the Taiwan Strait, pretty much 50 or 95% of the world's traffic goes through that strait per day. Yeah, I think it's a, so 90%, somewhere in there, 90% of all world trade is conducted by sea, and 60% of that trade flows through uh, the South China Sea, right? And in the South China Sea, there's some strategic choke points, one being the Malacca Strait, the other being the Luzon Strait, and then the third being the Taiwan Strait. Uh, and both the Luzon Strait and the Taiwan Strait would be affected by a conflict surrounding Taiwan because they're both connected to Taiwan in some fashion. But, yeah. Yeah, so then not only that, but just the fact that them invading Taiwan and successfully occupying it, it would allow China to push out uh, into the Pacific with total freedom. Because that was a lot of things that a lot of people don't get is that Taiwan in a lot of ways is one of the linchpins or the linchpin for the first island chain is that on either side you have as Chase pointed out the Luzon Strait and then also the uh, Milaco Strait. So realistically in any type of conflict or if the United States ever wanted to, we could theoretically close those straits up and prevent China from entering, uh, from going on to the Western Pacific. Or, but then also on the flip side, we can also do that as well in the South China Sea, prevent them, uh, further preventing them from, move, from being able to move freely with their ships. And China realizes this in the fact that any course of if if a wider conflict were to occur, they could quite literally the United States and its regional allies could blockade China with a large degree of success. Now, going back going to geopolitical, they a lot of that would push countries to 
understand or potentially think that, well, the United States should both, is supposed to be the worst police, quote unquote. And they had a, treat, a treaty of sorts with Taiwan saying that they will come to their aid in some form or fashion. Why didn't they come and help Taiwan whenever they needed it to prevent them from being occupied by the Chinese? And so for them, so for so for the United States, it would be a it would be the nail in the coffin would be the final nail in the coffin for a lot of the countries saying that well we can't really trust the United States but we're on our own. And so that's why you that's why you'll you more likely see that play out in the Middle East, Africa, Europe, um, Latin America, where you see all where you see these countries reunite some conflict them in these regions. So let's take for example the Middle East. The if that would have happened, I could see the Saudis actually developing the bomb because of the fact that Iranians are developing a bomb. We could see Israel revamping their revamping their not so secret nuclear program. We could see Turkey developing their program, developing a nuclear program, and so on. And so you see this you'll see this dynam, uh, domino effect, which a lot of these countries realize that we're on our own, guys. We need to develop capabilities that or at least provide for our own because the United States clearly will not come to help us. They didn't come to help Taiwan, and they're our closest allies, and they're supposed to be allies. Okay, I guess we could move on to some of these terrain and weather considerations that we talked about in the second class, starting off with the Taiwan Strait. I know we talked about uh, wind patterns and, and such like that, that can uh, limit the you know time when you could start an invasion and things like that. Do you want to start off with that, Sano? Yeah, so realistically, there's only two times in which China could potentially evade, whether it be in their favor, actually, would be in late fall or like fall, early winter, and spring, spring going into early summer, just because of the fact that the weather in Taiwan, along within the Taiwan Strait, it's so unpredictable that realistically, they would try to invade any other time. It will cause havoc with a lot of their shipping, a lot of their, a lot of the radars would be, will be negated, their capabilities would be downgraded significantly. Um, their navigation would be harder to navigate. Not only that, but the flood, but the tide patterns Along the west, along the uh, western coast of Taiwan, would change significantly, and so the Chinese, so the Chinese know this, and the fact that they would have to invade, essentially, so they essentially would have to invade 
during those two time periods or those two, those two time frames. Yeah, so uh, you're looking at basically in March to April and then September to October. And for all the reasons that Sino just said, but uh, you're seeing a lot of typhoons that happen in the area. And anybody that's been stationed in a place like Okinawa understands that those typhoons, they just come and they come a lot sometimes, right? And so you have to deal with that as well as uh, really foggy seasons that affect the the Taiwan Strait and certainly the actual areas on Taiwan. Uh, so visibility is really bad in certain times of the year. And then the wind patterns, like we said, they they get very volatile, especially in those typhoon seasons. Uh, I showed the the silk map that I have from 1942, from World War II, during the, the talk that we did. And even on there, it shows distinct wind patterns that, that were distinct enough to where they put them on the map permanently and said, basically, for these periods of months, if you're a pilot and you're in the Formosa Strait, like you're going to have to deal with significant winds and it's going to be a problem. Uh, so for all those reasons, the straight, just getting across the straight is already a problem before we even talk about all the consideration that happened when you get to the actual land. What are some of the terrain considerations for Southeastern China? So for Southeastern China, it's a mountainous region where you have a lot of high valleys or a lot of high mountains crisscrossed with a lot of rivers and other bodies of water. And realistically, that prevents uh, a lot of logistical movement in which the Chinese have tried to develop the region and they were mildly successful, but you see a lot of bridges. The rail system is primarily, the main one is primarily along the coast. And they still have a large emphasis on river time craft on moving stuff, moving freight up and down the river um, to include people as well. And they also have a lot of bridges. But the thing, and they know this, and how that would all affect the Chinese uh, any Chinese operation or invasion is the fact that they will have to conduct a a logistical operation, one of the largest logistical operations in the world, if not the biggest, on this limiting, on this limited transportation work. And so the terrain will limit that significantly because some of the sites that they would more likely use to, along the coast, to conduct embarkation of troops on their landing craft or rolling roll out ships don't really have the don't really have roads connecting them, connecting them to what to the water network. And so for them it would have to take time to switch up, to switch it up, to switch sites. Um, not only that, but the logistical efforts would strain that would strain the network as well. Is there anything that Taiwan can do to taking these terrain considerations into account for southeastern China use that to aid in their defense? Yeah. Um, they could theoretically, if if an invasion would ever come and they waited until it always it's already occurring and you know they do and the Chinese are moving reinforcements along those 
along the roadways, railways, things of, and riverways, then they could theoretically go in there with special operation forces or or really JTOs and destroy those bridges and railway networks because they know as well as China that it would be extremely difficult. The train would be extremely difficult. It limits them on how they'll be able to conduct the uh, logistical operations. They're going to destroy, and so destroying these bridges would show a massive monkey wrench as well into China's ability to conduct logistical operations. Now, since the Chinese haven't been able to practice conducting large-scale operations of this, of the magazine needed, it, they would have a lot of difficulties in, in, in moving uh, sourcing sites. I could see them messing that up, and the Taiwanese more likely realize this as well. And I imagine it would be even more difficult if they're, uh, you know, coming under fire from Taiwanese forces. Yeah, it would be it would be difficult, um, just because they're not Eastern. I mean, the China, the PLA hasn't fought a war in forty or fifty years, so they haven't been able to. So they won't really know how they're operating under fire until. And so they see missiles landing in the in the AO. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What are some weather considerations for Taiwan? Um, yeah, so for the weather in Taiwan, they would have to, again, as Chase mentioned, the, the typhoon season. Not only that, but just the mere fact that it's just, the seasons are so different on within the island itself. So in the north, you have a wet and dry season. In the south, you have a typhoon season. So it's more subtropical. So the further down you go, the more subtropical it is. And so that's where um, the typhoon season actually does affect Taiwan. And so have a, have a more, affects, more uh, affects Taiwan more than it does in the north even though the north gets way more water in terms of the rainfall than the south. It just spread over, it just, for, uh, the south gets it, gets is more concentrated because of the typhoon season. So for the Taiwanese, they'll have to take that into consideration because again, they'll be coming under fire as well. Then not only that, but they can probably use the weather to their advantage. Meaning that the Chinese would be visible on the beach, it's raining. All they really have to do is just continually press uh, press uh, continually press the line of the beachhead just to make them suffer or make them make them pay, if you will, because the weather will also play a significant liberty factor in the chi in China's ability to evacuate the medically the wounded. And as I mentioned in the previous class, the PLA actually places the emphasis on evacuating the uh, the wounded because they believe it's a big it's a it's a morale booster to the to the troops. 
Now, realistically, can they do it in the time frame that they prescribe? No. They're setting themselves up for failure if they believe that they can. Because as you know, as Lisa Mines pointed out, they're probably going to be more occupied in pushing reinforcement onto the beach than evacuating the wounded. But even then, they're still going to try to evacuate the wounded and which will cause a lot of logistical hiccups. That's further complicating an already comp uh, complicated and chaotic situation on those beachheads. Yeah, that, that sounds like a nightmare. I, I really liked how uh, uh, Lethal brought that up in the last class. It's like, if you're trying to take a beach and somebody gets hit, I mean, like, you can't stop and help them. Like, you need you need to take the beach. You're always going to be under constant fire until you secure that area, right? You can't, you can't stop and help people because then you're going to become a casualty too. But then you brought up how, how much emphasis China does place on casualty evacuation and they may not prioritize the objective over evacuating a casualty. Yeah, I could see them actually doing that. Um, and they'll possibly learn it on the ground, like at the battalion company level and say, hey, we can't evacuate our troops. We can't evacuate the wounded because we still need, we're still getting, we're under fire here on the beach. You know, they'll probably hold up the, you know, the headpiece so they can hear, you know, Taiwanese and American rounds incoming. And, you know, the, the person on the other side would argue with them saying you need to pull your, you need to pull the uh, medically wounded off the beach. That's a priority. Uh, so I could see that occurring. And another thing, another aspect of that is I could see the Commissars actually getting involved and saying that no, we need to get these people off the beach because the party provides for the the party provides for the for our party members, quote unquote, which the PLA was our party our party army, quote unquote. And so we need to we need to provide that we need to help these soldiers. And so I could see the Commissars playing a big albeit negative role in the conflict. So how much say does a commissar have over a combat commander? Okay, let's get into some of the terrain considerations for Taiwan. Obviously, a big topic in this regard is going to be the beaches and the ports that are available to the PLAN, right? Yeah, so... Two of the things that are discussed the most when we're talking about an invasion of the Taiwanese island. Uh, one, the beaches. And the reason that's brought up so much is because the beaches are limited, right? Uh, so when you actually, you can just Google, you know, viable landing beaches, Taiwan, and you're going to get a map. And it's usually going to vary from about 11 to 14 beaches that are viable amphibious landing spots that you could land forces on. Um most of those, well, there, there's some on the east side of Taiwan, but a lot of those are on the west side. Um, and that would be the ones that most people would be looking at for any kind of invasion, invading force coming from China across the Taiwanese Strait. And so limited beaches, meaning that there's only limited places where you 
you're looking at an actual amphibious landing occurring. And how that ties in with the ports is that because there's such limited beach space and you're not going to be looking at an invading force coming across uh, and just a place like Normandy where there's just miles and miles of beaches where you can land, uh, it's not going to be like that. So although there will be massive amount of troops coming across, it's going to be vital for them to eventually seize some of these deep water ports so that they can then take their transport ships that are going to have troops and equipment to these deep water ports and then unload. And last week we spoke about logistics a lot during our class and during the article series. And some of the things that we talked about is their ability to logistically get their troops and their equipment across the strait. A lot of that is going to depend on some forms of civilian shipping, whether that be um, semi-submersible ships or whether that be roll on roll off ships. And either way, we're looking at that. We're looking at the ability to port in an area is going to be a lot better than the option of going to the beach. Although it's not impossible, uh, it'd be a, a whole lot better. And it would certainly allow them to unload the amount of forces and equipment that they would need to start to gain a real foothold on the island. So on the west side of the island, the main two ports of discussion, although there's, there's quite a few different ports, and if anybody wants to tune into the previous discussions that we have that they are on the lethal mind substack so you can kind of go back and watch through some of those because we discuss the stuff in depth but the two that everybody will usually talk about is going to be the port of taipei for proximity purposes because it is so close to uh taipei the the capital of of taiwan and then the other one that will get a lot of discussion is the port of kaohsiung which is down at the bottom or the south of the island and the reason for that is because it is the largest deep water port that they have there, uh, the best suited for anybody to actually unload massive amounts of forces and equipment. And it's basically responsible for, I think, 60% of all import-export traffic uh, by sea for the island. So it kind of gives you an idea of, of how vital of a port that is. Now, there's a whole bunch of other ones, but not all of them are, are deep water suitable for large naval vessels. Um, a lot of them are a lot smaller and I think we, we zoom in on some of them. You can just kind of go to Google earth and you can kind of zoom in and see the size of different ships that are in some of these ports. I did that when I was constructing the classes that we've done in the past. And so really that's, that's kind of the problem set that you're seeing when it comes to specifically the beaches and the ports, because they're so limited, they're easily defendable. That being the beaches and the ports, but the entrances to the ports are I mean, they're very narrow because just like any port that's connected directly to uh, an ocean and not, you know, coming off of some kind of inlet, they have to be able to protect themselves from the actual ocean environment, not just invaders. So you have like sea walls and things like that that are blocking the waves and the and the tidal breaks and everything like that. And so it's very, very narrow area in which all the traffic is coming in and out of for the most part. So even in a, a port like Kaohsiung at the south, where there is two entrances, they're both very small, easily defendable. I mean, you could do a whole myriad of different things to defend those entrance and exit points for the ports. Um, so obviously that presents a pretty big problem set. And additionally to these ports, um, one of the other considerations is that Pretty much each of these each of these ports is also serving like a dual purpose, and this is something that you see on Taiwan a fair amount. Is that 
civilian infrastructure so serves a dual purpose with military infrastructure. And so at some of these ports, you're going to see naval vessels and uh, actual Taiwanese forces inside of them as well, or deploying straight from some of these places. So I'll, I'll leave it at that and see if uh, Sino wants to, to jump on and add anything to that little portion before we move on to any of the actual like terrain stuff. Uh, really quickly, I'll just add the note because I didn't add it at the beginning of this podcast like I should have that obviously all these opinions are that of myself and don't reflect the Marine Corps or the Marine Corps University. Uh, so it's just it's just a guy that's interested in it trying to talk about other people with it. So yeah, so regarding the port, I mean, especially around Kaohsiung, the reason why they would why the PLA would try to, you know, attack the porter like or at least attempt to, would be because of the fact that Kaohsiung is home to the naval fleet, the main naval fleet. Not only that, but just the mere fact that the port is so big that they can, that they know that any sabotage operation within that the Taiwanese could do would be it wouldn't really be total um it wouldn't there'll be some areas in which the taiwanese would be would destroy the entire port it would be it would be unusable for the uh, for the pla to for the pla they could come in and try to fix it up as best they could but realistically it would take too much time but there'll be other there'll be other areas in which Due to lack of time and also due to lack of forces available to to conduct those sabotage operations, it'll be less effective. And so, I think with so I think regarding Kaohsiung, they would try to take it because 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 of that bet, at least on the PLA. Now regarding the port in Taipei, they could try to, but Realistically, as Chase put it, pointed out, there's only one way in, one way out, and even then, the Taiwanese have got have got have gotten really proficient at notionally destroying that port. They've you've seen it in the article uh, in the photos that they released during the Hong Kong Hong Kong exercises they do every year, which you see. You see them uh, lining up stacks of shipping containers along the uh, piers and things and different areas like that, and so that they can like push them over, or have someone just push them over and just um, they can deny the PLA use of those use of those piers. Even then, they know that even then some some of those Shipping containers may contain a surprise as well, an explosive surprise as well, and and so there became and that along with other stuff that they do in that practice, the PLA knows that realistically they can go in and capture the port, but the ability 
to use that port would be limited at best. And even then, as Chase pointed out, there's dozens of there's tens of other ports all along the western coast, but they're not really for big shipping. And also, as you and as they also pointed out, the PLA would have difficulty in trying to use them. Like I figured, we could actually kind of switch places here. I want to talk about logistics before we go into some of the regional players, since we've already kind of touched on that a little bit. Sino, what are some of the logistical capabilities of the PLA? Uh, the logistical capabilities, they're able to conduct division or brigade-level exercise. They'll be able to move troops. They'll be able to mass brigade-level size units. Now, anything beyond that, division and higher, they have difficulty in doing that because haven't really tried to. Not only that, but the joint ability, the ability to conduct joint training or joint logistical operations kind of limited because their ability to conduct joint training and seat command and control is also limited. So regarding those two, you kind of see them having issues with that. Now going wider, they do have, they judge their joint medical medical facilities as adequate for supporting an operation. That means all the PLA would be able to support medically to treat the casualties, any, um, any um, and uh, provide medical supplies to the, to any logistic, any medical operation that they would conduct. Now there's a caveat. They judge that the war they judge their medical supplies as being somewhat inadequate to provide a long-term support for for the operation. Now, some some articles, some general articles say that oh, we only have like enough for 30 days. Some say 60 days, and so it's they vary so. From my perspective, this is my, my perspective only. They don't even the PLA doesn't have an, a real good idea regarding if they can support this, if they have the necessary medical supplies to support the operation. Uh, so real, just, real quick, let me let me ask you before you move on. Going back to joint operations, when when and if you get amphibious assaults on Taiwan, you're going to see two types of forces. You're going to see the PLA Marine Corps, Naval Infantry, right? You're mm -hmm. also going to see the PLA Ground Forces, amphibious brigades. Do they have experience of like joint training? Because you talked about how that's that's an issue because they generally don't do it a lot in between branches. But what about these two forces? Do they, do they train together? Uh, they do, but even they pointed out that they have a lot of issues regarding joint, regarding integration, whether it be comms, whether it be fire, uh, joint fires, things like that. So they have issues even trying to conduct joint training exercises between units. 
Okay. It might it might be something they want to work on. Yeah, it it would be important <laughs> if it's elaborate. <laughs> it's yeah, it's um it's very it's, it's I think I think uh, Chase would be uh, uh would comment but uh that it's very important. But yeah, it's it's very <laughs> it's, yeah. It's, yeah, a lot of people don't realize how how uh how difficult joint joint training is, right? Uh, not just amongst partner countries or partner nations, just within your own nation, right? We learned that lesson the hard way it, with American forces, right? You look back to like operations in, in Iran in what, 1979, 1980, that joint operation where we try to send in the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force in a joint operation to rescue hostages in Iran and it becomes a complete, you know, complete nightmare and, and Americans are killed in trying to conduct an operation that doesn't even go all the way through. And that's a case study that we kind of use within some of the stuff that I teach uh, when we talk about joint operations and why that was kind of a catalyst for us as a nation or as a military as a nation to understand this is a lot more difficult. We need to give it specific emphasis and train to a high degree, create doctrine, all those things surrounding joint operations if we're going to do them successfully very very difficult yeah from i have no experience but from my understanding amphibious assaults are like among the most difficult operations that you can conduct right in ter in terms of many things including logistics when you have two forces that's going to be conducting a large amphibious assault and they don't really have training working together there's going to be some big issues, I imagine. It's funny because they haven't another issue with the force that they would more likely use is the uh, 16th Airborne Corps, in which even with them, it gets forced. <laughs> the joint uh, joint training with them is forced for time to actually integrate with the Marine Corps, with the PLA Marine Corps and the previous uh, mechanized gaze is even worse than what them the other two actually tried. So it's it's kind it gets so it's very it's funny to see it happen, but then and also to read it, um, read about it, but it's also kind of telling that they're that they understand it's a big issue. Even at the tactical at the tactical level, they understand that this is an issue, and so it'd be interesting to see if they try to at least fix it. Definitely. Let's move on to some of the logistical considerations when you're talking about ships. Obviously, if the PLA wants to conduct this operation, they need they need ships that could that have capabilities, specific capabilities. And the PLA has, from my understanding, nowhere near the amount of ships that they would need to conduct an invasion of Taiwan. So they need to rely on civilian vessels, like you pointed out earlier. What are some of the things that China can do to get enough ships in order to conduct an operation? Uh, they can press the civilian fleet that they have, like the vulnerable off. Like Chase mentioned before, like they're going to use roll-on roll-off ships, semi-submersibles, just to generate those type of 
just to get a, enough amphibious shipping capability. And they've also, regarding vulnerable loss, they've actually implemented changes in how the ships are built to make them more uniform across the board. So that would be able to, so they'd be able to take them during times of war, during the amphibious invasion, and, you know, don't have to do as much modification to them, maybe just change out, attach, attach the ramp, make the ramp stronger, and then from there, uh, integrate some crew members, uh, some uh, some uh, Navy crew members within the ship as well, amongst the civilian uh, amongst the civilian uh, uh, trained crew, and then they'll be off. Now, have we seen this happen? Not totally. We have seen them, you know, have great success in integrating the temporary kits that they develop to attach to the World Model Lost ships to enable them to launch and take on amphibious ships and, or amphibious tanks and other vehicles straight from the water. Now, regarding the crew, we haven't really seen them actually train. That's a joint operation in and of itself, right? Talking about mixing civilian crews along with military. And I mean, we've all served in the military at one point or another. Conducting an amphibious assault or amphibious operation off of a naval vessel is inherently dangerous, difficult. Uh, and that's when you have the United States Navy who always, you know, that whole entire ship that works together. Uh, so to con to conduct that kind of operation with a mixed hybrid um, PLAN force and civilian force uh, would be uh, it'd be something to watch. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean it's one of those things which they haven't. Again, they haven't really trained, and they've actually said that they actually pointed out that this is a major weakness within any logistical operation. So, if you had to guess, how many? I know you threw out a number when we did the class. How many ships, roll-on, roll-off ships, do you think the PLA would need in order to conduct an invasion? Mm. I know I gave a ballpark of 150, maybe 160, and that's depending upon how they would integrate or divide up the dedicated naval shipping and figure shipping that they have. And so... And the reason why I say divide up is because they may not put the entire, all six of the brigades on the ships, on the uh, LAP, uh, LAP, LPDs, LHAs, things like that. They may decide to, okay, we're going to split, we're going to uh, split the baby. Um, we're going to reserve half of this, half of the plan and various shipping for half the um, mechanized uh, amphibious brigade. And then the other half will go to the, go to the three clan uh, Marine Corps brigade that will, that will, uh, that will be earmarked. And then the rest will be utilized, will utilize the vulnerable off ships and other amphibious shipping uh, to move out, to move uh, 
to move on uh, to conduct the amphibious landing. What are some of the logistical capabilities of Taiwan? Um, regarding the logistical capabilities, they developed a lot of stockpiles regarding how to uh, regarding their uh, a lot of stockpiles so they can resist the attack until they receive help from the United States and other countries, or until the PLA, until the, or until they push the PLA back. Now the stockpiles consist of, you know, oil, food, critical materials, because they, they, they understand they need to keep the economy going, and that was, and then also the most important would be munitions. Now, going wider regarding, you know, bases, things like that, they know that the, the bases would be just totally destroyed. And as Chase pointed out in, in our earlier class, for the fact that the Taiwanese actually got really adept at conducting operations and uh, operating out of ad hoc airports uh, along the eastern Along the along the east coast of Taiwan. Now, regarding the logistical capabilities regarding that, we don't really know where the stockpiles are at for all these munitions and oil and things like that. But they're more likely would be either on the eastern coast or in the central mountain range, because they know that the PLA would have difficulty even attempting to target them, target those areas of Taiwan. Let me kind of ask you this on a separate note, but still looking at Taiwan. How is their military industry? Are they able to support themselves for, let's just say, a decent amount of time before U.S. help arrives? They know that in the event of any type of conflict, their industries will be bombed. They're all the... Uh, all the um, factories where they're producing got munitions, shells, uh, military equipment will be destroyed. They know that uh, Chinese would take those out first, would be among the first to be either targeted or for destruction or for damage in any type of strike. Now that doesn't mean that the that doesn't mean that the Taiwanese don't have backup locations where they may provide, they may have the ability to produce some munitions, some equipment that they would need along the board. Okay. Anything else in terms of logistics that you guys want to mention? Uh, for Taiwan, the, the only thing I would add in there is that as far as logistics and transport on the island itself, because the island is is one, you know, it's one long island, with the predominance of the population and the key infrastructure, basing, ports, all that stuff being on the west side closest to China. Uh, they've structured their own basing and distribution of forces to combat that. I mentioned this in, in the class where we talk about forces position where they've set it up so that their forces are strategically in the places they need to be for when things happen so that they don't have to be moving forces large distances. Uh, and that kind of factors into the ability for an invading force to seize the island and then logistically move throughout the island would be very difficult because Taiwan would 
likely be looking to self-sabotage their main highways that run north to south on the island, for example. There's a lot of river crossings, a lot of suspended uh, bridges and freeways that are easily destroyable from, uh, from a friendly force in order to cease the ability for logistics to move on the island by an enemy force. So they have already made it so that forces are distributed in the north end to uh, basically guide guard Taipei, uh, some forces in the middle section, and then a preponderance of forces uh, down in the southern section next to some of those ports that we talked about earlier in this podcast. So I'll just add that they, they kind of already made it so that their forces are where they need to be, when they need to be, when things kick off. Okay. So I know anything else for logistics? No, that's uh, pretty much it, uh, Chase. Um, okay, let's move on to regional actors. I want to start off with the U.S. How likely is it that we would get involved in the event of invasion of Taiwan, and what sort of aid would we send their way? Um, I'll, I think for the, um, I think we would get involved. Just for the mere fact that on one level, we would have to come to Taiwan's aid. And this on the other, on the flip side of that, the Chinese would, would attack our bases. It would, during the first hour of the prelude to an invasion, they'll conduct strikes against our regional bases, whether it be in on Okinawa and Japan or Guam itself or Australia as well. And so for that, you could see that, you can actually see our environment based upon that, but more so it will cause you know, our allies to ask the question of like, should we get involved because they struck our bases as well, but they struck, or they struck bases on our territory what kind of aid do you see us sending their way in terms in terms of forces or weapons or things like that i think we would send in terms of equipment it would be pretty much anything that they would need whether it be more tanks more project uh, more munitions weapons things of that and then not only that but we may in fact send them send in forces there to include uh, carrier groups, ships, aircraft, things like that. Now, that doesn't mean that, I would say that in the event of any, in the, in the lead up of, to any invasion, there is a possibility for the United States to actually come out and say, we're gonna start sending in troops to Taiwan. There's that distinct possibility. Now, will that escalate? Will that be an escalate? Will that be an escalatory move on the United States part? Because China doesn't like, has said, and made it a point to say, like any any basing of U.S. troops or any foreign troops for that matter on Taiwan is a red line for them. Yeah, but if we're seeing troops massing in South China and in, in Southeast China in areas we know that it would be for an invasion, 
then at that point, the United States would just see it as mute. You already are planning planning to invade. We're just going to go ahead and throw them to golf as well. Chase, you would probably know better than me, but I imagine in the event that we get involved in a conflict like this, a big presence for the Marine Corps, at least, would be these new Marine littoral regiments that we have. You know, they could be placed plenty of islands in this area of the Pacific, right? And they could be placed on one and cause some damage to, you know, whether it be Chinese naval vessels or other things like that. Yeah, so obviously with the shift towards Force Design 2030, uh, a lot of different concepts come into life for the Marine Corps. One of those things uh, that we've moved towards in the Pacific specifically was, was the MLRs, right? We've stood up, stood up one in Hawaii, uh, another one standing up in Okinawa, and I think there's plans to have a third one uh, come in there in the near future. So, of course, those are those are tailored towards that specific uh, theater, and they come with capabilities that are not resident to a normal infantry battalion, right? They're they're tailored towards what that theater requires, and that's not the same small arms capabilities, right? We're talking about uh, precision fires in in actual against you know stuff that's happening out in the islands uh to be able to have effects in that kind of environment so yeah it'd be much more tailored towards something that would help us in any kind of conflict in whether it's the first island chain or, or anywhere in the indo-pacific uh, because those are specially tailored units for that kind of environment so if the Marine Corps is to get involved in something like that, you could expect, I mean, they're the stand-in force, right? And it's the whole reason that our commandant and, and the Marine Corps talks about the importance of having a stand-in force that is ready to fight tonight inside of uh, any environment, whether it's the Pacific or not. They just happen to be the ones that are best tailored and best suited to to fight in a place that they live in every single day. Got it. Let's move on to Japan. How how likely are they to get involved and where do we see them getting involved? Because from my understanding, they have some territorial disputes with China themselves. I could see them actually getting involved in the, in the from the start. Um, the reason why, is like, as I said earlier, their bases, we have bases on their land. A lot of people don't know this is that, but the land that we build our bases on is in fact owned by the government of Japan. So, um, so realistically, those bases are joint in a way, jointly owned. Japan owns the land. The United States owns the infrastructure, or leases the infrastructure, and. And so any type of attack on those bases would potentially prompt Japan to say, you attacked us by attacking the United States. Not only that, but you also have some of our bases that we jointly own with, with the United States or jointly operate out of with Japan and you killed some of our troops. We're going to go in right now. We're going to jump in and help the United States. Not only that, but on the flip side is that Japan understands more than anyone, including the United States, the potential ramifications of Japan, of China taking over Taiwan. 
And so for them, they would help out. And one of the ways that they will more likely help out is deploying their maritime self-defense force, especially their Japanese, especially the, uh, their submarines, because the Japanese, they have pretty, pretty advanced uh, submarines. I would, some people say that they would be the best in the world. That's including the Germans, the French, the, the South Koreans, the Italians, and, you know, their equipment, their subs, especially the Tuyu class, I believe that's the latest one that they're building, that they're building now, is the, one of the best, if not the best submarine um, currently in production. And so, the, so for the, so for that, you know, so for that, that the, um, the Japan will will come in will come in with using those, but then on the flip side, Japan would actually try to deploy its own amphibious forces, its own Marine Corps, if you will. Chase would probably um, have more knowledge about this. Their amphibious brigade, I believe, they have at least one amphibious brigade. Um, they'll probably deploy that one to work either alongside the United States Marine Corps or their or try to deploy them to Taiwan to assist in propelling the invasion along with any other forces that they could push towards Taiwan. All right, let's move on to Australia. Obviously they're a pretty big player in the region and this is kind of if this were to happen it would kind of be in their backyard essentially. There's also some major strategic cho choke points, excuse me, that are also in their backyard, like the Strait of Malacca, and you have a lot of other islands right around them as well. You also have U.S. military personnel in Australia, you know, the uh, Marine Rotational Force Darwin, that comes to mind immediately. How likely are they to get involved in this conflict, and what can they bring to bear? They'll probably get involved. Again, going back, it's, you know, they have we have bases there. The Chinese understand that any bait, and we're actually are expanding our footprint in Australia as well to include logistical supply depots and bomber deployments as well. And so they understand that. So the Chinese understand that if they do, we would have to be attacked, or the bases would have to be targeted because of the fact that it will be a safe. Haven for us to stage forces for pushes to the uh, further into, into the Pacific. This does sound familiar to those who study World War II history, specifically the Pacific Theater. We actually did do that in the early stages of World War II, at least in the case of the Pacific Theater, which we kept a lifeline open with with Australia, so that we could push. So we use that as a springboard to push into Japanese held territory. And regarding the regarding the um, forces they could bring to the table, they would mainly emphasize their air forces and navy, but they could probably deploy some of their ground forces if they elect to, and if they see a need for it. And and I think uh, AUKUS actually does play a big role in 
providing the Australian military with that ability to help us in that regard. Because if you look at some of the deals that come out of it, it mainly revolves around submarines, such as nuclear submarines, that technology, the ballistic missile technology, hypersonic technology, and other and other agreements that would be better suited for to uh, to prevent a or to prevent or assist in an invasion and propelling an invasion invasion of Taiwan. Okay. Let's move on to the Philippines. Obviously, this is happening right near the Philippines or really just south of Taiwan. And they have, from my understanding, some contested islands with China as well. And obviously, they have U.S. military personnel themselves and other disputes with China. Yeah, so regarding the Philippines, they're more likely to get involved and it will more likely be based upon the premise of them knowing that the actually pointed out the um, the uh, any conflict would have, would affect the South China Sea, which they have they face the South China Sea, and so that would affect their economy. Knowing that, but they know any after effects or any. Um, um, that any after effects would affect them as well. And so I think for them, they would get involved, but then not only that, but they also understand that the ramifications of why, of the what if of Taiwan or China winning an invasion, the actual effects of one invading or an occupying Taiwan, um, that means they'll be able to finally have access to the largest island within the South China Sea. It actually is an island, naturally, a natural island, not something that the Taiwanese built up over time like the Chinese did. And so for them, they can actually say that, hey, we have an island. So this is our, so the South China Sea is technically ours now. But not technically, they say it's legitimately ours now. So get out of our waters. And then, but realistically, as I mentioned earlier, the Philippines would provide logistical sites where Taiwan, uh, where the uh, where the uh, U.S. and other militaries who are helping out could build bases or use them as ad hoc supply points along northern Luzon and maybe some of the other islands that off the coast, just because the small size of the Philippine military, not only that, but just some of the Philippine military, the Philippine military is in the midst of a modernization. And even then that modernization is limited. So they could provide some support, but it won't really be, it'll be limited. Okay. 
Now, you guys don't have this in the article about regional players, but I did want to ask, obviously, if something like this happens, it's going to turn into a regional war, most likely, right? Obviously, we can't predict the future, but it looks like that's the route it would go. You have plenty of islands in the area that, again, you guys don't have in uh, in the article, but maybe, uh, you know, potential points of contention, right? You have the Marianas in Micronesia. I believe the army has a, a missile defense range over there. Also, you have the Solomon Islands, which is making their own security agreements with the Chinese. What's the potential for fighting in these islands in the South Pacific, in your opinion? It would largely be if China is successful in building any bases or having secret secret uh, agreements on in, in the Solomon specifically, but then also in other islands such as Bantu and then maybe Nauru, uh, maybe Nauru as well. But and we would actually, honestly, that would be a red line for. United States and Australia to actually get involved before any fighting would get, get out or, or uh, any uh, war would kick off. Just because of the fact that, again, going back to, you know, military history, especially in that region, as I mentioned before, we used Australia as a stream, as a springboard staging area for operations in the water Pacific. China realizes this. And that was one of the reasons why the Japanese kind of lost momentum there for, you know, one of the first times when the Japanese was pushed back. And so they understand that any, so in a case, in any type of war, Australia will be important because of the staging area. And so that's why you kind of see them, you know, courting the Solomon, you know, you kind of see them Try, attempting the same in Matthew, which is 200 nautical miles away, right across the, uh, right across the, uh, right across uh, from the Solomons, actually. And other, and a lot of these other islands, because of the fact that it's prime, uh, it's prime real estate for them to attempt to close off Australia. And, you know, I, there's a lot of people say, well, you know, war, you know, oh, well, you know, war changes. We can simply send bombers, you know, from Boxdale or Minot or any other bases within the continental United States to conduct bombing raids, things like that. And, you know, and I, you know, as I counter, it's like, yes, we, we do. But why do we deploy bombers to B2 bomb, uh, B2 bombers? B-1 bombers, B-52 bombers to Guam, uh, South South Korea, Australia, England, etc. Because logistics or maintenance issues. A lot of people don't realize that us going from continental United States conducting a bombing raid in, let's just say, Afghanistan. That takes a lot of Rare and tear on the on a ship or on on a vessel or forgive me on a aircraft, and so you can't really 
fly that ship, or you can't really fly the aircraft again because it has to go through maintenance. It just, it can't just, you just can't generate, oh, well, you know, you just can't change out the crew and then refill and rearm it and push it out again. You, you can't, it doesn't work like that. You have to be able to make sure the aircraft is worthy. Because something on, something on, uh, on aircraft always breaks during every mission, whether it be an F-22 or F-35, you know, the newest, the latest, the greatest. All the way down to the B-52, which has been in service since the 1950s. Something always breaks. You have to make sure it's operational still and things like that. Because if not, then you're losing the aircraft. That takes time to reproduce, if we can reproduce them at all. I don't even know if we're able to pull out B-52s from the boneyard to replace the new losses. So that's the reason why we would rather place bombers like B-52s closer to crisis areas to lessen the lessen the maintenance load. But then not only that, it's just a mere fact that it's easier to preposition forces there on the off chance that we need to go in and destroy those bases. Like the Battle of Guadalcanal. Yeah, I think one one good thing to note as far as Guam goes, you know, I think a lot of times we forget, probably because Guam isn't a state and it's so far away, but these are Americans that will be under serious threat, American civilians that will be under serious threat of Chinese missiles if and when a conflict like this does pop off. So it's it's definitely uh definitely something to take into serious consideration and, and figure out how to best defend that island. Yeah, I mean, Guam will probably be targeted multiple times. And I wouldn't be too surprised if China attempts to send its aircraft carrier, an aircraft carrier group to around Guam to make sure, you know, we can't generate as much power projection from it as we want to before destroying that carrier group. Well, in that case, let me ask you this. Do you think they would send their carrier group to Guam instead of having it off the coast of Taiwan or somewhere else in the region? We've actually have seen them do that. A lot of the exercises that you've seen them do, like out in the Western Pacific, when you see, oh, they're moving out towards, uh, they're moving through the Malaki, Malaku Strait and into the Western Pacific, they go one or two places the, uh, either the eastern side of Taiwan, eastern coast of Taiwan, or to an area in between the Philippines and Guam. And so you kind of see them practicing in that area. Now, are they taking little baby steps? Yes. But you, they're still practicing. And I, and I think that's an indicator of them actually conducting or practicing war planning. Let's move on to South Korea. I feel like maybe it's just my own opinion, but I feel like a lot of people don't talk about South Korea when they talk about uh, other regional players that would get involved in a conflict like this. But obviously they house a lot of U.S. troops and a lot of our military infrastructure as well. 
And, you know, as a uh, as a democracy in the region, I imagine they would be fairly concerned about the invasion of Taiwan by by a communist power. Yeah, I mean, the real interesting thing about South Korea is that it would likely go and innovate or help out in innovation, but there will be more focus upon what North Korea would be doing, like potential publications from North Korea. Now, would the calculus change if, for some reason, Xi Jinping decided that you know, the South Koreans could potentially join the join in, join the United States, since they do have a trilateral agreement with Japan to where they can share missile uh, missile data they're working they're conducting exercises together. Can they would they be willing to assist Taiwan? Then I could see them conducting attacks against South Korean bases. And that would prompt South Koreans back to get involved. Now, regarding that, again, we're probably seeing the point of maybe, maybe the Navy and Air Force maybe deploying some of their uh, some of their Army units and Marine Corps units, while maintaining at least some capability to push back against any or respond to any North Korean provocations, but. If they don't get involved kinetically, then it will be limited to humanitarian support and, you know, diplomatic at best. I'm sure somebody's going to ask, so we might as well address it. What about North Korea? What uh, Would they try to take advantage of the situation in, in any way if this turns into a larger regional conflict? I don't see them doing anything as extreme as invading. North uh, South Korea, you could probably I probably I can see them see uh, conducting killing of islands like what occurred in 2010, I believe, or 2009, the Waipido Island incident, and then from there maybe conduct limited issues along the DMC, but then again. I see it mainly focused upon those Northwest Islands and the maritime realm because they can actually control that to an extent. Whereas the DMZ, any provocation there has potential to spiral and escalate until both sides fight each other. So one side invading, the other side is repelling the invasion. North Korea is invading and the South Koreans along with the United States we're got it let's move on to india maybe maybe i'm misinterpreting this but we had cognitive marine on the last class last uh thursday right or yeah sorry that was that was last thursday um and it kind of seemed like you two had differing assessments as to india's response to a to a conflict like this cognitive marine for my understanding at least thinks that India will be chomping at the bit to get back some of its territory in the Himalayas that China has seized and controlled for some time. And if I remember correctly, your assessment is that India might be a little more cautious than that in terms of the response. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I I see. I remember his. I remember what what kind of he said, and I kind of I disagree with his assessment, just because they've always been more cautious about how they would get involved with anything regarding China because they don't want to be, or at least from their perspective, be caught up in a us versus them block like the Cold War. And again, that's that's the system of them trying to be, of them being a non-aligned country or one of the leaders of the non-aligned movement within in the Cold War. Now, that doesn't mean that they won't get involved in some type of way. In fact, they're actually conducting a study about what help they could provide under which scenarios. And one of those scenarios is that, excuse me, that they hinted at was maybe providing military support to a potential to an invasion whether it be sending naval ships or aircraft to to the um, to Taiwan to help Taiwan and the United States out or it could be opening up a third front or it could be or going back to the other possible scenarios for responses to the fact that it could be provide medical supplies be a logistical hub to repair any ships or aircraft that are damaged or need repairs that are involved of uh, uh, that are being involved in conflict. Okay. Now, I think that's pretty much all we got as far as what we covered in class and in these articles and such. What do you guys have coming in the future in the lead up to the war game in December? The last article, C2, Command and Control and Political Will will be released this Friday. Um, it's a edited version of the one that I released with the bulletin earlier in the year. And so it will be more of an emphasis upon what the C2 will look like regarding an invasion of Taiwan and then also the political will as I, as, as I talked about during the uh, earlier bit of the podcast. Okay, and that's coming Friday, you said? Yeah. Okay, great. Hey, Chase, do you know if there's any uh, any spaces left for the war game? I don't know if it's been officially closed. I know the last time that I spoke with the team over at Lethal Minds that we were extremely close to our max. So there's, uh, there's visitor spots as well as actual participant spots. And we're, we were pretty close to the max and closing it out the last time that we spoke. And that was, that was actually a couple weeks ago. Um, so I know that we're either really close or, or it's completely full. Max yeah. for both the participant and visitor. Correct. Yeah. And we were pushing like, it was something like 115 or 120 people, uh, which is like kind of the max capacity for what we could sustain inside that room, as well as uh, what realistically we could actually have in there to be able to make it not a complete, you know, mess of people okay is that going to be a gw correct yeah it'll be at george washington university on uh, their students and staff over there are helping to facilitate and 
doing a lot of support to actually set up the event and carry it out for those three days. So their student body's helping a lot with that. Okay, awesome. Do either of you have any saved rounds about the war game? Any of the considerations? Uh, yeah, I'll just throw out that uh, the war game. If whether you're, if you're not attending, uh, just because of you you haven't signed up or because it's just not feasible for you to travel out to the national capital region for a three day event, which is completely understandable. Um, it's something that's going to be done by civilians and military. Like there's no, there's no like barrier to entry for people that are going to be participating in it. Um, so we're going to have everything from students that are attending those schools, like George Washington university, Georgetown. Um, we'll have military people. We'll have people in the DOD enterprise, obviously out there. So it's going to be a little bit of everything. And we will have a, a team out there doing recordings and stuff like that of it. So there will be products that come out afterwards for those that aren't able to make it. And those will most likely be pushed out on the Substack, on lethal minds and whatnot. So there's also going to be a panel like a panelist that we'll have there. So that, you know, we'll have various different products, whether you want to tune in to see the crisis sim and war game, whether you want to tune in to see the discussion panel that we have with some key experts in DOD and in uh, Indo-Pacific relations and things like that. We'll have a lot of products that will be pushed out on the, on the backside of it. So just for those that won't be in attendance. Donna, what about you? I don't have any save rounds. Um, it's pretty much hit everything. Um, no, just, um, yeah, just the last article will be published this Friday and I hope everyone is able to attend the war game and be very interested to see what happens. Okay, awesome. Uh, Chase, how can the people find the Quantico Warfighting Society? Yeah, so uh, I am primarily just on Instagram. Uh, that's where I'm, I'm at every day. So just Quantico underscore warfighting underscore society. Uh, you'll find my Instagram page, and that's where I'm, I'm doing most of the work at. I have I do have like a website up up there, and we have a YouTube channel as well, uh, where I just post. Uh, I think I posted a couple of the discussions we've had as a chapter, uh, as well as like some war game tutorials, walkthroughs, stuff like that. So I kind of just post random things on the YouTube in case people want to watch them. Uh, but primarily, you can just find me on Instagram, and I implore anybody to go ahead and reach out or follow and and hop in the DMs. I'm always willing to talk to people and chat about pretty much anything, not just Indo-Pacific stuff, just a little bit of everything when it comes to the military. I'm always down for it. So feel free. Awesome. And Sino, where can you be found and how can the people support your work? Yeah, so I could be primarily found on Instagram, um, Sino Talk, and also my Substack as well. Um, um, my DMs are always open to ask questions or, you know, if I know about topic X and, and also as well as I also do uh, write for the bulletin on the borderlands of the uh, Indo-Pacific desk chief as well. So you can find me on there and where I talk about topics related to the Indo-Pacific region, not just China as well. Okay, awesome. I think that's uh, that's all I got for you boys. Thank you both for being here. I know it's uh, getting kind of late where you are. I'm sure you got work tomorrow, but thanks for your time. Yeah, I'll see you boys soon. Yeah, no problem. Had a good one.
All right, thank you everybody for listening to that episode. Hope you all enjoyed it. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. It means a lot to me. You can find this podcast on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts, we're there. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. Please consider supporting us again, Patreon, patreon.com slash Analyze Educate, ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash Analyze Educate, or Substack, analyzeeducate.substack.com. Again, all those links are in the show notes below. Please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you use to listen to this podcast. That helps us out a lot as well. That's all I have for you guys right now. We'll see you soon.